Job 38. Would you pray with me, please? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come before you and that you're listening, that you're God, you're good, you're great. Father, I pray that uh, you would continue to open our eyes to, your, to who you are, uh, just like you did through the songs that we sang. I pray that you would do that through your words as we look at them this morning. Bless this time. I give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. be tough. <laughs> um, pay attention. <laughs> oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or or who has been his counselor, or who has ever given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's one of my favorite set of verses. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And yet in Romans 1... It says, talking about humanity, us, it says, professing to be wise, meaning us, professing to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible, wise, unfathomable, it's hard to say that word, unfathomable God for the glory of corruptible things of birds and, and, and human beings and, and crawling creatures and four-footed animals. Isn't that amazing? The glorious, wise God of the universe. And, and we say, oh, but you don't know how wise I am. And it's hard. It, it struck me again as um, I've preached a couple of weeks ago on the heart and have learned a lot about the heart. I've also learned about how amazingly brilliant human beings are. I mean, it's amazing to think that in my heart right now, in one of my arteries, is this little wire mesh called a stent that has opened up one of my arteries, preventing me from having a heart attack. Isn't that amazing? In one of my little arteries, a little wire mesh that was worked up after they scoped it out, and I watched it on TV, 
they work this little wire mesh up through my artery and put it in my artery up here. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's phenomenal. And I think because of that, and we could go on and on and on with the amazing accomplishments and wisdom and knowledge and, and skill that we human beings have. I mean, I think what we're experiencing now in the United States of America is, in a lot of cases, what science fiction books were being written about, you know, years ago. Isn't it incredible to think about what it could be if Jesus doesn't come back in another hundred years? I mean, it'd be kind of like the Jetsons, you know, that I watched back in 1913. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to laugh. You're supposed to say, no, Dave, you're not that old. But anyway, the wisdom of human beings, I think, keeps us from seeing the greater wisdom of God. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, the wisdom of God. And as I've studied it, and as I've looked at it, it's, it's really the heart of what we are going to do in the next several weeks as Dan, Daniel and I speak about the character and the attributes of God. It's to lift our eyes from us. We are so full of ourselves. Well, at least I am full of myself. Way more fuller of, full of myself than I should be. It's to lift our eyes from us as wise as we are, as smart as we are, as strong as we are for us like Rich Mullins in the song that he sang long ago, you know, we're not as strong as we think we are. And for us to come to that point as we gaze at God, this morning his wisdom and in the weeks ahead other aspects of his character, for us to lift up our eyes above ourselves and see God and say, oh God, you are God. And to be changed ourselves, to become wiser ourselves as we lift ourselves above our own wisdom and see God's wisdom now, it's, it's not comparable at all. And then for us to become more wise ourselves as we're connected with the wise God of the universe. Job 38. We're going to start here and we're going to look at two things this morning and, and I'm, it's going to be a little bit different the way I'm going to share this morning, and I'm going to ask you, you're going to have to really pay attention because we're going to look at the wisdom of God in creation, and then we're going to look at the wisdom of God in redemption, two aspects of the wisdom of God that if we are able to pay attention this morning, and some of it's going to be, like I said, some of it's going to be just purely scientific information. I mean, because science to a degree, has been co-opted by materialists and naturalists who say, oh, well, science says this, when it's not science at all. Science, if we look at it, it lifts our eyes to see God, the creator, designer, wise God of the universe, and be amazed. So we're going to look at some science this morning. And then we're going to look at some redemption. And we're going to look and see, oh, God, you are wise. You are great. And I hope it'll just lift our eyes to him. But you're going to have to pay attention because some of it is hard to get, okay? But that's not bad because if God is so great, he shouldn't be always easy to get, should he? Right? Otherwise, we're talking different gods here. You're not talking my God if you got him, you know, in a little box. And we're not talking about the same God. So pay attention. We're going to start in Job 38. Just read along with me. Start at verse 1. 
The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom? I love the last chapters of Job. God says, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? My goodness, God could say that about half of our conversation, couldn't he, half the time? (laughs) Brace yourself, because I have some questions for you, Job, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me, if you know so much, do you know how its dimensions were determined and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? This is a poetic description as as God questions Job of what went on way back in creation. Who defined the boundaries of the sea as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, thus far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Job, have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Have you ever told the daylight to spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? For the features of the earth take shape as the light approaches and the dawn is robed in red. The light disturbs the haunts of the wicked and it stops the arm that is raised in violence. Job, have you explored the springs from which the seas come? You ever think about that? Have you ever hiked way up in the mountains and the springs that come out of the Where do those come from? How do they get there? Have you walked about and explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Do we? Do you this morning realize the extent of the earth? I mean, the cosmos <laughs> from the billions of galaxies with the billions of stars to the depths of the deepest ocean, animals that we've never seen before, from the huge whales and probably bigger ones in the depths of the oceans that we haven't seen to the smallest little bacteria that we can't see unless we use an electron microscope. Do do we understand the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. We're going to pick up some more later. Tell me about it if you know. And so we're going to explore just for a little bit I want you to get the wisdom of God in creation, okay? The first thing, I'm just going to read a few things about the cell. I want you to pay attention because this isn't just information. This is a glimpse into the wisdom of God, okay? The cell bristles with high-tech molecular machinery, far more complex than anything devised by humans, as wise as we are. Each cell is akin to a miniature factory town humming with power plants, automated factories, and recycling centers. It's interesting, way back, the father of evolution, Charles Darwin, said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications then my theory of evolution would absolutely break down. Well, for a a mind and an eye that's willing to see, it's shattered. It's shattered. 
Consider the flagellum. Any of you ever heard about the flagellum? It's attached like a tail to some bacteria. As the bacterium swims around in its environment, the flagellum whips around like a little propeller. Okay? It is a microscopic outboard rotary motor that comes equipped with a hook joint, a drive shaft, O-rings, a stator, and a bidirectional acid-powered motor that can, come, that can hum along at 100,000 RPMs. 100,000 rotations per minute. Just to give you a little comparison, a Formula One racing car peaks out at 18,000 RPMs. 100,000 RPMs. Structures like this little flagellum require dozens of precisely tailored, intricately interacting parts which could not emerge as a gradual process. The coordinated parts must appear on the scene all at the same time, combined and coordinated in the right patterns for the molecular machine to function at all. Do you get that? That's a lot of big words. But unless this little flagellum, acting like a little rotor, a little a propeller on bacteria, unless all the parts were there all at the same time, it wouldn't function. I'm going to just mention one, little, one more to you. It's called the cilium. The cilium, it's so small that none of us could see it. It's one twenty thousandths of an inch, okay? It's pretty small. One twenty thousandths of an inch. Can you even imagine a human being making something that small? Well, picture an oar slicing through the water, propelling a rowboat forward, and you get the idea of what a cilium. They're whip-like hairs on the surface of cells. If the cell is stationary, the cilia move fluid across the cell's surface. For example, cilia line the respiratory tract. Okay? Every cell has about 200 cilia. They all beat in rhythm like little oars in order to sweep mucus toward our throat for elimination. They play a very important part. That's how our body expels little foreign particles that we accidentally swallow. If the cell is moving, the cilia row it through the fluid. Sound simple? Guess again, under an electron microscope, cilia have been found to be made up of 200 protein parts and are very complicated molecular machines, one twenty thousandths of an inch in size. Now think about it. It's 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 fine like little hair. Most hairs don't beat back and forth, do they? They just kind of they're there. I mean, my hair doesn't do much. How can cilia do it? I want you to picture. This is. I'm just going to give you a simple explanation of what a cilia is. Each cilium has nine pairs of long, thin, flexible outer rods, which encircle two single inner rods. The outer rods are all connected to each other like a long tube surrounding the inner rods. So imagine kind of like a tube, nine surrounding two inner rods, okay? The inner rods each have a motor attached to them, and the outer rods and inner rods are connected to each other by linkers, like little ropes, very little ropes. 
This is how it works. The motor attached to one inner rod has an arm that reaches over and grabs the other inner rod and pushes it down. The two inner rods start to slide down together, and as the inner rods start to slide down together, the linkers, the little ropes, they pull, connecting to the outer rods that are kind of slacked. As they pull them down, what they do is they, they do this. And as they pull down, they pull the outer rods down. As they go up, they go up. And it creates a rowing motion, pushing the mucus in our respiratory tracts to elimination, rowing little cells through the bloodstream. One twenty thousandths of an inch in size. Isn't that amazing? All three rods, linkers, motors are needed for the cilium to function with one of the parts missing, they wouldn't work. All of them, all at the same time, there. This little guy couldn't have come together over a long period of time with successive modifications. It all had to be there at the same time. Or it's possible you would have choked on your mucus while you're waiting for one of the parts to be added. Consider the universe for a second. Okay, did you get that? That's kind of a lot of words, big words. When we're used to reading, you know, Dick ran after Jane, but no, I was kidding. That's the cell. It's amazing. And we could go on and on and on. The design of the cell that glorifies the wisdom of God. It couldn't have just happened over time. Consider the universe. The force of gravity, if it were only slightly stronger, all stars would be red dwarfs, too cold to support life. But if gravity was just slightly weaker, all stars would be blue giants, burning too briefly for life to develop. The margin of error in the universe's expansion rate is only one part in 10 to the 60th power. Cosmologists speak of cosmic coincidences, meaning that the fundamental forces of the universe just happen to have the exact numerical value required to make life possible. The slightest change, and we'd all be dead. Says astronomer Heinz Oberheimer, I'm not a religious person, but I could say this universe is designed very well for the existence of life. The basic forces of the universe are tailor-made for the production of carbon-based life. Consider this. Someone else has tried to explain the universe this way, like a big universe-creating machine with thousands of dials representing all the aspects of physics and cosmology. A big machine with thousands of dials representing gravitational constant, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, the ratio of the mass of the proton and the electron to each other. Any of you know what any of those stand for? Two people, that's good. I mean, as I read this, it stretched my mind. <laughs> so thousands of dials representing all these constants that are required for the universe to function. Each dial has hundreds of possible settings and you can twirl them around at will. There is nothing that presets them to any particular value. And what you discover is that each of the thousands of dials just happen 
to be set at exactly the right value for life to exist. This is fact. This isn't just stuff I'm making up. Even the slightest tweak of one of the cosmic knobs would produce a universe where life is absolutely impossible. One science reporter put it this way. He said, they are like the knobs on God's console, control console, and they seem almost miraculously tuned to allow life. Almost miraculous, huh? Okay, one more thing before you totally space out. It's good stuff to read. I would, um, I've gotten this out of two books, one called The Total Truth by Nancy Piercy and one called The Case for Creation. And I can't remember the guy's name. Lee Strobel, yeah. And there's dozens of other books. It's good stuff to read because what does it do? It lifts our minds from being so full of ourselves to realize, man, we are small compared to our great wise God. The structure of DNA. Can any of you explain to me the double helix? No, I won't ask you to do that. Maybe one of the most powerful evidences for the wisdom of God in creation is the DNA code. DNA is organized into long structures called chromosomes. We've probably heard that word before, right? Chromosomes? You, way back in you know, grade school biology. Although each individual repeating unit, they're called nucleotides, are very small. Each nucleotide in the DNA chain itself is only 0.33 nanometers long. Anybody know how long a nanometer is? I didn't until I looked it up. One billionth of a meter. Okay? A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. These little nucleotides are 0.33 nanometers long. DNA polymers can be very long. In fact, um, I better keep reading here. Although each individual repeating nucleotide is very small, DNA polymers can be very large molecules containing millions of nucleotides. In fact, for example, the largest chromosome number one has approximately 220 million nucleotides. Okay? Isn't that amazing? Chromosome number one in our DNA has 220 million nucleotides. Um, the set of chromosomes in a cell um, in, in a cell makes up its oh I have a bang anyway <laughs> the complete DNA ranged to 46 chromosomes chromosomes has approximately 3 billion base pairs of nucleotide isn't that amazing 3 billion in a DNA strand of 46 chromosomes 33 billion base pairs of nucleotides. Can you understand that? And where are these little DNA strands? They're inside each of our cells. Can you comprehend that? How that could be? How that could happen over, I don't know, millions of years? By chance, random selection? It's impossible. The DNA molecule is built up of four bases that function as chemical letters. It's like an information system inside of our bodies. 
And the question is, just to kind of summarize it here, how do we get such highly specified, complex biological information inside our bodies, each one of our cells? Well, we all know from living, from life, from walking about in nature, that if we see a message, for example, you're wandering out in the woods, and carved into a tree are the words, Dave loves Cindy. That's my wife's name. Cindy, I'm Dave, okay. (laughs) And you see, most of us are going to think, that is amazing how that tree evolved that way. (laughs) How that message somehow, over years, evolved into that arc and, I mean, into that bark and was... (laughs) and was formed that way, it's absolutely stunning. I mean, I I would say all rational people would look at that and they would assume that wasn't the process of millions of years, but more of a love-struck, you know, boy who carved those words in the tree. Chance just doesn't account... It's kind of like putting a blindfold over your eyes and grabbing some Scrabble letters and, and beginning to put them in a row. And, you know, by chance, it's possible that you could put the words N-O together or O-F or I-T or maybe even, you know, if you're really lucky and should go to Las Vegas. No, I just don't do that. Um, you could put together three letters or four letters, but... But we're not talking about simple letters. We're talking complex biological information, three billion base pairs in the right order in our cell. And every human being on the face of this earth who has ever lived distinct, distinguished by their DNA. That's why DNA profiling has become so important in finding out and solving murders is because though 99.9% of our DNA in human beings is the same, that 0.1% distinguishes you, 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 every one of us from everyone else on the face of this earth. Can you imagine that? Billions of people with billions of base pairs of nucleotides in our DNA strands, every one of us distinguished. Can you imagine? It's, it's incredible to me that somebody could say, that that could happen by chance to every human being on the face of this earth and not credit that to the wisdom of the creator God of the universe. It's incredible. It takes such faith. I can't even imagine believing that myself. Unless we start with the presupposition that there isn't a God and we can't allow for him in what we look at. See, we're not talking about putting together IT and NO and maybe CAN as we blindfolded put those scribal letters. We're talking about Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet. We're talking about the Gulag Archipelago. That doesn't happen by randomly putting together scribal letters. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
That's what I want you to get. Let's read. Just look back at Job here really quickly. Pick up at verse 19 um, in Job 38. Where does the light come from? And where does the darkness go? Can you take it to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course, you know all this, Job. For you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. God kind of has a sarcastic little bent here, doesn't he? (laughs) Have you visited the treasuries of the snow? Have you seen where the hail is made and stored? I've reserved it for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the origin of light? Where is the home of the east wind? How do these things come about? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends the rain that satisfies the parched ground and makes the tender grass spring up? Does the rain have a father? Where does the dew come from? Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the waters turn to ice as hard as rock and the surface of the water freezes. Can you hold back the movement of the stars? (laughs) We are so small. And as you look out in the night sky at the billions of galaxies and the billions of stars, we, we can't even begin to see a fraction of them. Do we think we're so big and so wise and so important? Are you able to restrain the Pleiades or or Orion? Can you ensure the proper sequence of the seasons or guide the constellation of the bear with our cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe and how God rules the earth? Dear people, do we see how big God is? And his wisdom that spoke all these things into being? What a wise God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And so Job responds. I want you to just flip over to chapter 40. I would really encourage you to read all the way through, but look at verse 40. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? (laughs) You're God's critic, but do you have the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will put my hand over my mouth in silence. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 1, would you please? Romans chapter 1. Page 1117 in this Bible, 1117. I'm going to start at verse 20, Romans 1.20. From the time the world was created, that's what we just talked about, <laughs> the design of a wise God. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God has made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. That's the conclusion to all that little information I just gave you. There's no excuse. God has made the world in such a way 
to reveal himself to us, his eternal power, his divine nature, everything about him, his wisdom. It's for us to look at and say, God, you are God. But what happened? Look at verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. The result was that their minds became dark and confused and claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people or birds and animals and snakes and so human beings, us, humanity, claiming to be so wise, not seeing, denying, despising the wisdom of God, we become fools. (laughs) Become fools, making ourselves out to be gods more than God himself. G.K. Chesterton, um, 50 years ago, said that materialism, naturalism, denying that there is a God is really our established church. And I believe that's true in the United States of America. Our God has been reduced from the glorious, wise, amazing God of the universe, creator of the universe, to a God of our own making. Materialism, naturalism. Atheist Carl Sagan, any of you heard his name from the public broadcasting system Cosmos series? His slogan, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be offered as a mocking substitute for the glory of Patri. A short hymn of praise to God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever will be illustrates the pride of man. Doesn't it? It illustrates our pride. (laughs) That somehow because of the as amazing they are, accomplishments that we've accomplished as humanity, they pale compared to what I've read here and what we could go on reading for hours and hours and hours of the wisdom of our Creator God, His greatness. It's interesting. It was Charles Darwin's purpose to show that the universe, and this is a quote from him, though appearing to be designed was merely the product of purposeless, meaningless matter in motion. Isn't that amazing? Professing to be so wise, seeing the universe and saying, oh man, it it looks like it's designed, but of course we know it isn't because no such thing as a God exists. Professing to be wise, we become fools. Humanity, that's us, proud, rebellious, sinful, separated from the glorious creator of the universe despising the wisdom of God, refusing to worship him, saying there's no God. It just, it just happened. My question is, as we've seen the wisdom of God in creation, what hope is there for such humanity for us? Really, despising that God, despising his wisdom, despising his creation, what hope is there? And that's the second thing that we're just going to look at really briefly. It's, it's in the amazing wisdom of God in redemption. That this, the same God who in his wisdom created 
the most amazing universe possible, exactly created to sustain life. That same God, despised by us, rejected by us, has provided for us in his wisdom a redemption that it says in 1 Peter, even angels are baffled to understand. It says they long to look into the redemption. Consider his wisdom. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to look at just a few verses. Don't worry, I'm... I'm I'm going to keep you here all day. It's amazing, though, God's wisdom. Consider his wisdom. Man's rebellion. Sin's debt must be paid. Justice must be carried out. In Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is death. But God's covenant love must triumph. The promise of a people mercy must not be stymied, for God so loved the world. Justice and mercy, how can they be reconciled? How can humanity be reconciled to God? Look at 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18. I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy human wisdom and discard their most brilliant ideas. So where does this leave philosophers, the scholars, the world's most brilliant debaters? God has made them all look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Verse 22. God's way seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove it is true. And it is foolish to the Greeks because they believe only what agrees with their own wisdom. Verse 23, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the mighty power of God and the wonderful Wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is far stronger than the greatest of human strength. The wisdom of God in redemption as demonstrated by the foolishness of the cross. God's wisdom. Think about it as we've looked at it here briefly, the eternal God takes upon himself finite humanity. Who would have ever thought of that? The eternal God becomes a human being. Or who would have ever thought of this, that the holy God of the universe would take upon himself humanity's rebellion and sin, holiness, becomes sin for us. Who would have ever thought that the eternal God of the universe would die for us? Sin's power is shattered through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Who could have guessed? 
Justice and mercy triumph together in the cross of Jesus Christ through the wisdom of God in redemption. Justice is satisfied. Sin is paid for. The debt is taken care of. And God's mercy triumphs in the person of Jesus, God himself, on the cross. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the foolishness of our wisdom, our attempts to reach out to God ourselves, to think that we can please him, that we can impress him, that we can do something for him. We say, can we be that bad? Surely there must be some good in us. Romans 3 says, there's none righteous. No, not one. Isn't there something that I can do or something that I can accomplish? It was done on the cross. When Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. Paid in full. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to accomplish. There's nothing to pay. It's all been done for us by the amazing, wise creator God of the universe who in his wisdom despised and rejected by us himself became a human, took our sin upon himself and went to the cross to bring us back into relationship with him. Oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom. So really quickly, what should be our response? If we've gotten a glimpse of this morning of God's wisdom and creation, God's wisdom and redemption, what must be our response? In Job 42, the last chapter of Job, and you just to see Job's final response. Chapter 42, verse 1, Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You ask, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I did not understand, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. What what is to be our response if we've gotten a glimpse this morning of the wisdom of our God in creation and the wisdom of our God in redemption? The answer is worship. (laughs) Worship. And repentance. And a humbling of ourselves before this God who, who we pale in significance to, is to worship him and to humble ourselves before him and to say, God, God, I'm yours. In Romans chapter 12, the next verse to, oh, the depth of the riches of both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, the next verse in Romans chapter 12 says, the response is offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Say, God, here I am. I am nothing compared to you. I am yours. I'm all yours. God, I'm yours. Worship. The second thing is, we're not going to look at it, but in the book of James, chapter 1, it says, ask him for wisdom. You know, we think we're so wise. If we come to the realization 
that we aren't so wise after all. In James chapter 1, it says, if you lack wisdom, ask him. So the first response should be worship. Worship him. The second response should be ask him. Ask him for wisdom. The wisest man who ever walked the face of this world, what made him so wise is because he asked God for a listening heart. Wisdom. And then the last thing, and we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we should proclaim him. Christ crucified the wisdom of God. Proclaim him. And we should be going around telling people (laughs) about Jesus. The wisdom of God, the creator of the universe who became our savior to bring us back in a relationship with the one God that we despised. Worship, ask him for wisdom, proclaim him. The wisdom of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see. And Father, I pray that if in some way, what I've communicated this morning would help people. I pray that you'd bring those thoughts to mind. You'd bring the scriptures to mind. You'd open our eyes, our minds, Father, above and beyond ourselves to see you and to be amazed and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.